And today's scripture reading comes um, from the book of John, chapter 17, 1 through 5. And if you want to follow along in your bulletins, it's on page 4. Jesus spoke these things and looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. Since you gave him authority over all people so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life, that you may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Aaron. For the season of Lent, we're beginning a new teaching series, and what we're going to do is look at just one chapter in the Bible, from now all the way through Easter. And that chapter is John chapter 17. We just read the first five verses here. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to the, the, the whole chapter so you can just get a feel uh, for what's there. John 17 is one of the most profound, one of the most deep, one of the most rich chapters in all of the Bible. Some theologians have said it's too sacred a chapter for anyone to even try to preach on. Just don't even try it. All you should do is read this. This is like holy ground. Others have gone in the opposite direction and said, don't you dare think you can preach one sermon on this chapter. Sometimes when you're preaching, you go chapter by chapter. They say, no, don't even try. I'm reading a book and uh, preparing and studying for uh, this sermon series, and this pastor, it's a series of his sermons, preached 48 sermons on this chapter. That's like a whole year's worth. And there's another one out there that I'm consulting as well. This pastor preached 145 sermons, kid you not, on this one chapter. That's <laughs> like three years' worth of sermons. Why is this chapter, if you have it open, you're looking at it, why is this chapter so sacred, considered so sacred? Why is it considered so important that someone would preach 145 sermons on this? What is this? Well, to start, this is Jesus' longest recorded prayer that we have. It's at the most intense time in his life. The time where his focus is most heightened and intense because he knows he is about to suffer and he is about to die. You see that there in verse 1 and how he begins the prayer, Father, the hour has come. If you read along in the Gospel of John, there's numerous times where Jesus says the hour is not here. The hour hasn't come, but now he says the hour is here. And when someone is about to die... That is a sacred time. They're not using their prayers and asking for prayer, saying, um, I hope that the weather is good tomorrow. Would you pray for that? Nobody's praying for that when they know they're about to die. Or even like, I hope I have a good day tomorrow, or maybe hopefully I get a good parking spot. Those kind of prayers are not the things that people are praying for. Everything they say and everything they're praying for is coming from the core of their soul and their being. It's coming from the place of their highest priorities in life. 
And that's what's happening here with Jesus. That's what we have here. Jesus is praying, as we'll see, for himself and for us. Later on in this chapter, in verse 20, he says, I'm praying not even just for those here, his disciples, but I'm praying for those who would come to believe through their word. So he's praying for us. If you're a Christian, this is Jesus' prayer for you. Now think about this. If Jesus appeared to you today somehow, Jesus Christ appearing to you and said to you, how can I pray for you? Now you would say, well, I think Jesus' prayers, if any prayers are heard, it's Jesus' prayers. And if he asked you, how can I pray for you today? What would you say? I want you to think about it. Maybe even write it down in your bulletin or somewhere. Put it in your mind truly and honestly. What would you ask Jesus to pray for you? Here, we have the prayer that he did pray for us. And as we'll see over the course of the next six or seven weeks, it might not be the prayer that we would ask for. It might not even be the prayer that we would want, but it is the prayer that we need. That is the title for this sermon series. In this prayer, we learn Jesus' deepest heart for us, his highest priorities for us, for the world, and for our life in the world. Right before Jesus started this prayer, he concluded his final encouragements to his disciples. There's a number of chapters of the final discourse, the final teaching Jesus had for his disciples, John 13 through 16. And at the very end, if you, you can see this if you have your Bible open, Jesus says, final thing, you will have suffering in this world. But take heart. Take courage. I have overcome the world. So Jesus' prayer here, he prays right after that, is for us living in a world where he says we will have trouble or we will have suffering. And his prayer in light of that reality, helps us understand what does it mean? How is it possible to live in a world where Jesus says there will be trouble, there will be suffering, but also that there is overcoming? How do these things fit together? The disciples were just about to face their most challenging, confusing, and fearful time. Jesus was about to die. He prayed this prayer for them out loud. That's why we have this prayer. He prayed it out loud so they would hear it and they would record it and remember it. They were entering into trouble. And this was Jesus' prayer. What about us? Just as we might feel like the trouble of COVID is receding, it's decreasing, maybe we felt like, oh, we can breathe a little bit in this world of trouble. And then a war breaks out in Ukraine. And there are other troubles we are dealing with. We are all already tired. Maybe we felt a little bit hopeful, but now we're feeling very cautious and tired of so much suffering in our world and in our lives. If that's you in any way, shape, or form, this is the prayer that you need. During the season of Lent, it's often a time for us to look at our prayer lives, and that's important, and we'll do that. But even before that, this Lent, what I'd like and invite, uh, what I'd like to invite you to do along with us in this series is to consider, even before the prayers we need to pray, consider Jesus' prayer for us as the prayer 
that we need. So here Jesus starts his prayer by praying about his own suffering. He's able to pray in the most difficult and intense time in his life for himself and for us. From, look at verse 5, from this unique perspective, from the perspective of time before the world existed. And from the beginning of this prayer, the first five verses, we learn three foundational lessons about prayer. So I know they're not in the bulletin outline, but I'll go ahead and give them to you and I'll repeat them throughout. They'll be on the slides as well. We learn about the goal of prayer here in these five verses. We learn about the gift of prayer. And yes, there's a third G. We learn about the guarantee of prayer. So let's look at those three things together. In this prayer, we learn something vitally important about the goal of prayer. When it comes to prayer, our prayer lives, there are a lot of difficulties that we have, that I have. There are a lot of questions that we have when we pray. And one of the most important things we need to be clear on as we deal with all those difficulties and questions in prayer is the goal of prayer. What is the goal of prayer? What is the goal? To know if we're successful at something, if something is working the way it should, we have to know the goal, right? So if you're exercising, you're just doing your exercise, whatever that might be, and someone says, how's it going? Well, you answer that based on the goal. Is it to lose weight? Is it to get buff? Whatever it is that you're doing, is it happening? Well, you need to know the goal. If you're a student and you're taking tests and you have your grades and they come back, Someone says, well, how do you feel about those grades? Well, it depends on the goal. Was it straight A's? Was it 4.0? Was it 3.5? Whatever the goal may be, you have to know that to know if it's working right. So prayer, what is the goal? Is it to get what we ask for? And if we don't, our prayer failed? Is it to feel better after we pray? And if we don't, then our prayer failed. Is it to perform a spiritual duty so that God will bless us and give us a good day or a good life? And if he doesn't, our prayers have failed. What is the goal? What is the ultimate goal? What are we after in prayer? Jesus' prayer here shows us. Remember the context. Jesus is about to suffer. He's about to be crucified. He's clearly aware that this is the time. He says the hour has come. And he begins the prayer by praying for himself in verses 1 through 5. In verse 9, he begins praying for his disciples and for us. But what does he pray here? For himself. Look at verse 1. He says, Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you. And in verse 5, the book ends here of this short introduction in this prayer Glorify me in your presence with that glory that I had with you before the world existed. So I don't know what you'd be praying for if you were in Jesus' shoes, if you knew you were about to suffer death. I would be praying for endurance, courage, help, strength. And it's not wrong to pray for those things. We see Jesus praying for many of those things in the garden a few moments later. But here, allowed for his disciples to hear and written for us to read, Jesus prays for glory. What is glory? Glory is beauty, Splendor, weight, weightiness, worthiness, importance, and greatness. All of those things wrapped up together. 
And that, that weightiness and greatness and splendor is seen and acknowledged. That is glory. And glory is the main theme, you could say, of all five of these verses. The word is repeated five times. What is Jesus asking for when he asks for glory? Well, you see here, he's not just asking for his glory. He prays for his glory so that he might glorify his Father. Verse 1. Verse 4. He's praying his completed work would glorify his Father on earth. And then he prays for a return to a glory that he shared with the Father before the world existed. What's the best way to capture this? Maybe we can use the phrase, he's praying for this mutual glorification. And when Jesus closes out his prayer in verse 24, it's not printed in the bulletin at the very end of this prayer, he comes back to this theme. Father, he says, I want those. I think we have a slide here so you can see this. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory which you have given me because you love me before the world's foundation. The ultimate goal of this whole prayer, mutual glorification that we would see the glory of the Father and of the Son and know the glory of God. His prayer here is then that we would know a glory, a beauty, a greatness, a worthiness, a splendor, and a love that was there before the world ever existed. This is what Jesus is praying right before his suffering. This is the prayer that Jesus is giving his disciples and us. Would they know a beauty, a glory, and a splendor, the one that was there before the world existed? What a phrase. Before the world existed. Can we think about that for a second? What was there? What was happening? No universe, no matter, no time, no people, no planet, nothing. What was going on? I was Googling a little bit on this and saying, what do people think out there? What's going on before anything existed? It's fun to kind of go down that rabbit hole. Uh, you can ask Dr. Jonathan Fang about that. He's, he, he knows about these things. He's in the back there. I told him I'd call him out right now. He's, that's his specialty, so ask him about that. But people say there's a space-time vacuum, whatever that is, before anything existed. But this text tells us, no, that's not all that was there. There was something there. This is the answer. Mutual glorification and loving. Mutual glorification and loving relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They were honoring and glorifying and loving each other in eternal loving communion. We say in our theological catechism, our um, theological resource, question number one, what is the chief end of humanity? What is our main goal in, in existence? The highest goal is to glorify and enjoy God forever. What about God? What is the chief end of God? The answer is here. To glorify God and enjoy God forever, Father, Son, 
and Holy Spirit. It's hard, it, it hurts your brain to think about this. What are you saying? What does this mean? What is that like? We can barely speak about it, but Jesus here is praying in light of what he had always enjoyed before anything existed, this eternal community of love and delight. That was what was there before the world existed. Here's where I want to bring it home. What, what does this have to do with us? Your prayer life is directly related to your picture of what was happening before the world existed. Was it a void of nothing, a lonely God? Or was there mutual glorification, joy, delight, love, and life? This is the key to the goal of prayer. Jesus' goal in this prayer should be our goal in our prayers. The greatest goal of prayer is the glory of God that we might more truly know and deeply experience his importance, his greatness, his splendor, his weightiness, that the central reality of the universe would be our central reality. And so that means the goal is not first off that we feel better in prayer, not that we get what we want, and not that we get God to say yes to what we want, not that anything happened to me that I can feel, or did I check my box off for the day or do my duty? No, the goal is this. Did I get even just a little bit of a glimpse of the importance and beauty and weightiness and the greatness of God? Do I see, even if just a little bit better, even if just a tiny smidgen better, my life, my troubles, my needs, my desires, my requests in light of his glory? Am I more able to say, hallowed be your name, your will be done. Your kingdom come. There's an ancient prayer. And studying this and thinking about this this week, I thought, this is why. This is why this ancient prayer has been prayed for at least 1,500 years, if not more. It's called the Gloria or the Glory Patri. It goes like this. I think I might have a slide. There it is. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning before the world existed, is now and ever shall be world without end. The goal of prayer is to take this, the central reality that was there even before the world existed into the challenges of our day, into the trouble we encounter, into the overwhelming feelings that we have. All those matter to God. The goal of prayer is that we would see all of these things in light of this great reality. So much of our prayer begins on our terms as for our goals. We are the center of existence. Prayer is where we learn that we are not. And that this God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is. The goal of prayer. The second thing I want to show from this passage is necessarily connected to this first point. For us to be able to make the glory of God... The highest goal of our prayers, we have to get this as well. These things are connected, and that is the gift of prayer. So before prayer can be developed and learned and practiced, before we can grow in prayer, it has to be received as a gift. Most of us have this backwards. Most of us think prayer is where we, what we do and where we go to get gifts from God. Right? That's how most of us think. This prayer of Jesus says no. 
Prayer is God's gift, his greatest of all gifts. To pray as we should, for prayer to be what it should be in our lives, for us to grow in it, we have to believe this. And so let me try to show this. So Jesus is praying here that the world would come to believe. Let's start in verse 4. Come to believe that prayer is is the greatest of all gifts. Let's start in verse 4 and go backwards. Verse 4. Jesus says, I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. What was that work that Jesus was given to do? Verse 2 tells us, to give eternal life to all you have given him. What is eternal life? Verse 3 tells us, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. So Christianity says this. Jesus the Son did not have to leave the glory he had before the world existed. But he did, and he chose to for us. He laid aside his glory. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, becoming human, in order that he might come to this hour to suffer and die in our place, all so that he could give us something we didn't have, that we've all lost eternal life. And he says eternal life is this, to know the one true God and to know him. We hear eternal life and think, this is what I've always thought, infinite life, right? Life that goes on forever and ever. That's what we think of when we hear eternal life. We, we go to heaven when we die and we live forever. That that is not what is meant here. I think the first person who taught me this was C.S. Lewis. And he said, the Bible, when it talks about eternal life, is talking about a quality of life, not a quantity of life. Another theologian said, eternal life is best seen not as everlasting life, but as knowledge of the everlasting one. So Jesus isn't talking about a life that just goes on and on forever, immortality. He's talking about a quality of life. And this means that prayer is entering into this life. Prayer is entering into this life we were made for, the life we are saved for, and the life that we will live forever. Let me share an illustration. Can you imagine this? A couple on their wedding day has their wedding. It's a beautiful ceremony. The reception is great, great party. They seem to be just so in love with one another, and they're pulling away. In the car, you know, the car has there in the chalk or whatever that is, just married. And they're pulling away onto their honeymoon. And the husband turns to his newlywed wife and says, ah, that was awesome. We're married. It went well. It's great. There's just one thing that I want to ask you. What do I get out of this? And the wife said, what do you mean? I mean, now that we are married, what am I going to get? Like, what are the benefits and the perks and the other things that I'm going to get? Like, what am I going to receive? And what does the wife say? (laughs) What are you talking about? What are you saying? I am the gift. That's what it means to be married. You have me now. Our prayer life falters. And sputters and fails because this is how we think about prayer. If I pray, what will I get out of it? Will God really even give me the things that I want and need if I pray a lot and fervently and use the right words? 
Will I get what I want? Jesus here is saying to us, do you get it? You have been given eternal life. Knowing God the Father and Jesus Christ, His Son, you've been brought into the life that they've shared from all eternity. All other gifts flow from this. Like marriage, the gift is one another, husband and wife, and all the other gifts of marriage, they come out of that. Knowing each other, union with each other, and communion. That is prayer. Prayer is the breath of this life. We grow in knowing God as in any other relationship through communion, through time, through conversation. This is prayer. Is this how you think of prayer? A quote I wanted to share from a book I'm reading uh, during Lent from Pastor John Stark. He says, God must never be an enhancement to our self-improvement plan or a ticket to a better life. He is life itself. He must be the goal, the end, and the prize. So friends, prayer is not how we get the gifts of God. Prayer is the gift of God. Is that how you think about prayer? How do we get this gift? Well, Jesus talks about that here in this prayer as well. That's what the whole prayer is really about. In verse 4, he says, I have a work to do. The Father has given me a work to complete. When I do this work, then I can offer a gift to the world. He says, this is what this hour that I've come to is all about. He must die so we can have life. At the very beginning of this whole section, right before he gave his final address to the disciples and before he prayed for them in John 12, 27 and 28, it all started when he said this, Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? But that is why I came to this hour. And he says, Father, glorify your name. Our sin is like anti-prayer. Think about this with me for a moment. Sin is like anti-prayer, where we seek the gifts of God apart from God, without God. At its heart, that's the essence of our sin. We don't want you, God. We just want what you have to give to us. And the Bible says this always and only leads to death. And so Jesus came to this hour to experience the loss of what he had before the world existed. And even this is a deep mystery. The hour that Jesus was entering into somehow, the eternal communion and the delight and the mutual glorification that he enjoyed with the Father was disrupted and broken so that he could experience that in our place. That was the work he was given to complete in order that we could enter into eternal life. It's something we've heard often. If you've been in the church at all, you've heard Jesus died to give us eternal life. Okay. But based on what this is saying, that's the same thing as saying Jesus died to give us the gift of prayer. How might this change how you approach prayer? 
Prayer is a gift. It is the gift. Final thoughts here. My third point. The guarantee of prayer. Okay. The goal of prayer is the glory of God. Your will be done, not mine. Your kingdom come, not mine. The gift of prayer. Prayer is the gift of knowing God. Life with God. Point three, the guarantee of prayer. And I know what we all wish this, this point will say. Okay, if I get point one down and I get point two down, then you're going to tell me how I can guarantee that God will answer my prayers and come through for me that the way that I need him to. But that's not what I mean. And let me explain because I think this is even better. There are things for us to ask for in prayer. There are things uh, that we need to express to God, our desires, our needs, our laments, and more. Yes, God hears and answers those prayers. And we'll see Jesus prays for a number of these things as he moves on. But it's also true. And you know this if you've prayed before at all, even a little bit. You know, sometimes it doesn't seem like God is hearing you. That he's not answering your prayers at all. Like prayer has no guarantees. So it's just this exercise in great mystery. We pray without any guarantee. And so we wonder if they have the goal right, if I have prayer as a gift, does it make any difference in the actual things that I pray for and experience in my life? And so many other people pray for times of suffering and trouble and need and questions and crisis. Does prayer make any difference? Yes. And it is guaranteed. Here is the power of this prayer for us. If God the Father has given us his only Son, God the Son, if Jesus the Son has completed the work that he was given to do, verse 4, to give us eternal life, verse 3, and if this five-verse prayer of Jesus is answered, then we have a resource here in this prayer to handle anything and everything. We have a guarantee that there is a plan in place that was put in place before the world existed, that this plan led to this hour and this prayer, and if this plan succeeded, if this, pr- if this prayer was answered, then we received the gift of eternal life. Then this means that nothing in our lives can happen apart from this plan, this plan of love. This plan that will always end up in the destination of us being wrapped up in the eternal love of God. Would Jesus come to this hour? Would Jesus die? Would Jesus break that which he had before the world existed if it wasn't a guarantee? Maybe not everything we want, Maybe beyond our understanding, and how does this in my life get me there, closer to you, closer to that glory? The Romans 8 says, if God did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? Not all things that we would want on our terms, but all things that will lead us deeper into eternal life, the life you and I were made for. Let me see if I can make this even more practical. One final example, I just saw this story today on NPR. Um, 
website in the news. The title was this, How Ukrainian Churches in Sacramento Are Leading the War Response. And I was like, well, what is this? I need to, I need to read about this. And there in that article tells the story of a grandfather, a Ukrainian grandfather, named Volodymyr Andrushuk. So this is a, a grandfather living in Sacramento. He had fled Ukraine a long time ago, and he has a prosthetic right leg. And the story is he's going to Poland. He's going to rescue his grandson. And it says, despite the extreme risk, he plans to stay in Ukraine even after finding his grandson to help other disabled people in the humanitarian crisis. Listen to what he says, Volodymyr. I have to be there. Where it's very bad for people. He said, wherever there's a need, or it's hard to breathe for people, as a Christian, I want to be there. Isn't that what Jesus says here about why he came and left the glory that he had with the Father before the world existed? I have to be there. Or it's very bad for people. I will go there and to rescue them. Wherever there is a need, I want to be there. The person who has taken this prayer of Jesus to heart, knowing that there is that guarantee on their life, that they've been wrapped up in the eternal love of God with that type of security, knowing they've been loved to the uttermost like that, is enabled like Volodymyr Andrushuk, a hero, we would all say. I want to be like that. This life comes from this prayer. From someone who knows the ultimate goal, that they have the ultimate gift, and there's a guarantee nothing can keep them from receiving that gift to its fullest extent. And so what do we have to lose? We can be like Jesus. Where there is a need, we want to be there that others might know the gift. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this prayer. It's beyond our understanding, really, to hear your son, to hear your son praying in deep and intimate communion with you. We know it's sacred ground. And yet we also know that you've invited us, invited us into the sacred ground. That even here, as I am praying to you, and we are heads bowed, praying before, before you in your presence, help us to remember the gift that prayer is. That we can know you. That we can grow more deeply in the life that we were made to live. We long for it. Even when we don't realize we're longing for it, we know we long for it. It's behind all other longings. Lord, I pray for us. May we hear this prayer of Jesus afresh today. May it fill us with hope and courage and strength and life, knowing that because he has completed the work on our behalf, this prayer is ours. 
May we live in the joy of knowing that more and more and more. And may, may we be like our brother Volodymyr here. When we see need, help us be there. Even when it's risky and hard, help us give our lives away because you have given everything to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.